do have that passage, Hebrews chapter 4, particularly we're going to look at verses 13 through, through 16. Let's just pray. Father, we've sung, Behold him there, the risen Lamb. I perfect, spotless righteousness. Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture, you would help us to behold our great high priest who is at the Father's side. His work of mediation, propitiation, dealt with, done. Lord, encourage us. You know our hearts. You know as believers how we can doubt the sufficiency of Christ at times. Encourage our hearts, we pray, that we would taste his grace, that we would, as this passage uh, exhorts us to, in these moments, draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace for us in our time of need. Lord, speak to us according to our need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, one of the reasons why we do that is because it intends to remind us of the means by which we have become believers, become Christians. Literally, as we take the bread and the cup, as we share those elements, they are to remind us of our sharing in Christ and the means by which we share. Jesus, on the night that he is betrayed, says, doesn't he, he breaks the bread, this is my body, which is for you, given for you. Take and eat. That sharing or participating in Christ is not earned. No merit of my own. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, Jesus says. In other words, friends, God is under no illusion as to who you really are. The desperate, rebellious nature of our hearts before him. Even on the night that he institutes that meal of grace, not only is he betrayed by one of his disciples, but the rest disown him, don't they? Jesus tells them as much. This very night you will all fall away on account of me. Peter, of course, replies, doesn't he? Even if all fall away, Lord, I never will. Jesus tells him this very night you will disown me three times. Not just once. Three times. Just as Jesus saw through the fickle words faithless words of his disciples. So this passage, particularly verses 12 and 13, remind us, don't they, 
that the word of God has the ability to render people naked and helpless before the living God himself. The judge to whom we must all give an account. Verse 13, nothing is hidden in all creation from God's sight. Everything, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We face this truth, friends, that God knows our dirtiest secrets. And one day, we will all stand before this one who sees all and have to give an account. Where do you go with that? Where do you go with that truth? If we believe those words. If it weren't for what the writer says next, that would be an unbearable thought, wouldn't it? For most of us. For me. In fact, I was talking with someone the other week who grew up and the only real sense of God that she has was something like verse 13. A God with CCTV cameras everywhere, monitoring her every move, her every thought. There are some who live that type of Christianity, don't they? Whereas this, there is this, that's the, the conception they have of God, as if all they can do is try and try, and yet they sense God is forever disappointed with them. It's never enough. There's always that in the closet. Others, that sense of God leaves them resentful. He sees my sin, yes, but he does not understand how hard my life is. But notice for all of us who feel the all-seeing eye of God upon us, how his word instructs us. What an incredible shift in tone between verse 13 and verse 14. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah? From warning, and there is a warning for all of us, to comfort. Where should we turn as we recognize our brokenness and shame before God? The gracious answer follows immediately. Isn't it lovely? If you're reading sincerely those chapters 3 and 4 and reading of the Old Testament people saved from, uh, miraculously saved from Egypt out of slavery, saw the wonders of Sinai, and yet when it comes to the promised land, their fickle hearts are exposed. And who thinks they're any different? And the writer is telling that story to believers like you and me who have trusted in Christ, but the Christian life is hard, full of challenges, both with troubles, the battle with sin, and the battle with unbelief. And he points out to us that the same God sees our hearts just as he saw the attitudes and priorities and unbelief of Old Testament Israel in the wilderness. Everything exposed. And yet, and yet, for all who see that all-seeing eye of God upon us, where should we turn? It's not a footnote. By the way, there is a way. It's the next words, isn't it? 
Therefore, because of this, because of that reality in your life that God sees all, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. It's the headline, isn't it? The God who sees all encourages you to come with boldness to his throne. How? Not you, not your own confidence, but confidence in Jesus, our high priest. So three thoughts from these verses. Three thoughts around the cross. The love of God. The love of the all-seeing God. Firstly, very straightforwardly, we have a great high priest, Christian, in the heaven. We have a great high priest in the heaven. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the sole hope that any of us have to stand before God and know his smile. It's just sung it, haven't we? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest who's ascended into heaven. In the Old Testament, we could read of this if we continued reading in chapter 5. The high priest's job was to stand in the gap, if you like, between sinful people and a holy God. And Hebrews 5 tells us the high priest offered sacrifices to atone for the people's sins and gently cared for sinners in their struggles. But, of course, the big problem was, well, two problems, really. One problem the sacrifices they gave were really not enough to atone for sin. And secondly, the priests themselves were sinners. But here in verse 14, the author notes who this priest is and where he serves. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Think about that and think if you know the letter of Hebrews. How does the letter to the Hebrews start? The letter of the Hebrews begins with the writer declaring that God has spoken in these last days through his Son. The Son who is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his being, who stands as appointed heir of all things, who sustains everything through his powerful word, who has, chapter 1, again, made purifications for sins and sat down. And with that work complete, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty of high. That's his location. He's ascended into the heaven. His work of propitiation, that long word, that word that reminds us that he is the one who bears the wrath, the right just anger, for wrongdoing and injustice, sin, that mercy can be poured out. He makes things right so that God can be the one who is always just, always does what is right and pronounces sinners, the guilty, justified. Justified. Jesus has completed that work. He mediated and restored peace, dealt with our sin fully and finally through the cross. 
as we are undone, as we think about the Word of God that divides all and sees all, the Word through whom God has spoken is the one that made purification for our sin, who sits in heaven. Where is your hope before the judgment seat of God? The very Son of God who has dealt with sin. We have a great high priest in the heavens. Secondly, we have a great high priest who gets us. Who gets us. Not only is he great, he is a sympathetic high priest. God is not distant and unaware. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus did not merely appear to be a human being. He didn't put it on like a space suit. Rather, he had the Virgin Mary's DNA. He partook of our human nature. When you wonder, where can I take my questions and my suffering and my pain and my sorrows? When you wonder, can I take them to God? Here is the high priest that gets you. Does he understand? Do you see that in coming to Jesus, we come to one who shares our humanity? That's what these verses say, don't they? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We come to one who shares in our humanity, yet without sin. Sin is like a parasite on our humanity. It diminishes who we might be. It makes us less human. Jesus is fully human, without sin. Not only without sin, but in obedience. To be human is to be made in the image of God, and he perfectly images God in his humanity, doesn't he? He is perfectly righteous in his humanity. He perfectly images God in the rejecting of power and pride, wealth or glory, and instead, in obedience, walks the path of the cross, the path of our rescue did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage, but say made himself nothing. The very nature, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself, became obedient to death on a cross. He walks that path. And you've seen it in Philippians 2? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Why? Because that is the path of the perfect human being who perfectly images what God is like. Who perfectly images in that very act the heart of God to humanity. To serve, to redeem, restore. He came to serve rather than be served. He sees right through us 
therefore, and does not pity us for not being like him, but truly sympathizes without sin. Friends, we have the reassurance that our help comes from someone who perfectly understands our weaknesses and temptations, and yet at the same time, because he didn't sin, holds the key to navigating weakness and temptation perfectly. He gives grace. Jesus sees all, and he sees all with sympathy. As Satan tempts him to pride and power, he responds, doesn't he, in obedience to the Father and serves us, rejecting Satan's throne of phony glory for the throne of the cross. He knows poverty with its associated temptations. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He knows loneliness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me yet without sin? This isn't a perfect illustration by any means, but imagine a hostage situation when that team comes in to rescue and release those hostages. They do not think about whether those hostages were foolish or not to be captured in the first place. They simply come offering rescue. They sympathize for the situation and care and get involved. The full the fully righteous, the fully human Jesus came to serve, came to rescue, came to save us from our sins. And so as we come to him, if that's his posture, does he come and look at us to find disapproval? Or disappointment with us? He is not surprised or shocked by your sin. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. We have a great high priest who gets us. And finally, we have a great high priest who draws near to us. Think about what disobedience does in the face of the temptation to sin. He restores life and hope to others. He's created a new community with himself as the vine and his brothers and sisters as the branches. He responds with sympathy, mercy and justice. Do you see, far from being repulsed by us, his heart burns for you and his desire is for us to draw close with confidence. That's the words, isn't it, in verse 16? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you read verse 13, as we did at the beginning, and you let that sit in, how would you feel about drawing near to a holy God? Drawing near to God with confidence, courage, or boldness probably sounds insane. In the midst of shame, the grip of fear, or the paralysis of failure, how in the world could we confidently come to him? The answer, only Jesus. Jesus makes it possible. Our sin has been paid for, and our shame has been covered. Perfect love 
has been unleashed to drive away our fears. Jesus himself now stands right beside us to reassure us and represent us. We are welcomed as cherished children, loved and accepted by the Father. We don't strut into his presence in self-confidence like we always deserve to be here. No, rather our confidence is in the full and finished work of Jesus at the cross. It is not you, but it is what you have, Christian. See that phrase in verse 14? Since we have. Or verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy. No, we have one who has been tempted in every way and did not sin. We have a great and sympathetic high priest. The people in the Old Testament in the wilderness, why did they not enter the promised land? It tells us, doesn't it, in, 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 in the previous chapter, unbelief. In other words, they did not realize what they had in the covenant God who had covenanted himself to them. They did not realize. They feared the other nations more than they understood the power, the might, the awesomeness, the wonder of the God. Yeah? In our approaching of God, it's not so much necessarily for many of us thinking about the power and wonder and might of God but more the confidence and encouragement and belief that we have a sympathetic and great high priest who calls us to draw near. Hold firmly to him. Come boldly to him. What awaits those who draw near to God's throne? Well, what do you deserve? Well, thankfully not that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Find grace. This is not a throne of condemnation or criticism though we would deserve that. It's not a throne of rage or rebuke. It is a throne of grace. The only hope for weary and wayward pilgrims like us. Mercy. Mercy for whatever brings you to your knees, the burdens that crush you, the shame that stalks you, the regrets that rob you of peace. See your great high peace holding out in his hand mercy for you. Not a fist of retribution, mercy. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mercy. Grace. We deserve judgment, but we receive forgiveness. We deserve to be cast out but he draws us near. We deserve hell, 
but we are now citizens of heaven. We deserve nothing from his hand, and yet he graciously gives us all things. He provides what we need to thrive and live for him, strength for our weakness, healing for our wounds, peace to our troubled minds, comfort in affliction, supernatural joy and peace for our deepest sorrows and steadfast love despite our unloveliness. Friends, grace saves us and grace and grace alone gets us home. Jesus, as he goes to the cross, knows who he's dealing with. He knows our weakness and our waywardness, but his grace is sufficient. This is my body. That is for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, Jesus goes on, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, with you, in my Father's kingdom. Grace will get you home. Think about that. He sits around the table with those disciples, offers them the cup knowing that they will desert in the hours ahead. And he's able to look them in the eye and says, we will meet again around a table in my Father's kingdom and then we will drink together with joy. And he says the same to you, Christian. He says the same to us all as we trust in Christ as our great high priest. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we do just want to bow, Lord, in our own hearts, and acknowledge our need. Lord, your word tells us how you see all. Lord, I'm sure so many of us in this room have felt the convicting power of your word, reading the scriptures, hearing it preached over the years, and realizing that you know everything. You know our sin. And yet, Lord God, you point us to the most surest of hopes in the face of judgment. You remind us of the one who comes to stand in our place. Your Son, the radiance of your glory, Jesus himself. The high priest who is now in the heavens having made purification for the sins of his people. Lord, we thank you for what we have in Christ. What a treasure. What an eternal prospect because of your love for sinners. Lord, we thank you for this gift. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us, all those who are here who are believers already, to hold fast to the faith we profess and to draw near to you as this passage encourages us. Lord, pray 
for brothers and sisters here this week that they would find at your throne mercy and grace for all they have ahead. Lord, some of those things are on our minds already. Some of those things we don't know, but you know of this week. And we pray that we would be reminded of the safety and security that we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he gets us. Lord, thank you that he came knowing all about us, coming to rescue. Thank you that as we come to him in his eyes, we do not see disapproval or disappointment, but sympathy and love and, and one who says, I've made a way. And so we pray that we would know him and his mercy daily. And you would give confidence here to each of those who are believers of what they have in Christ. That it is certain, not because of their faithfulness, but because of Christ's faithfulness. And Lord, I pray for those here who have been listening to these things, but perhaps would not describe Jesus as their high priest. Lord, pray that they would know that Jesus has mercy for them too as they come. Encourage their hearts to see that you, the all-seeing God, have made a way to remove our transgressions from us. In your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.